This, uh, this winter, we're looking at uh, a series called um, The Stumbling Block and the Cornerstone. So it's because the idea that there's a stone that can be there that people could trip on. It's, it could be an offense, but it's also something which you can build on. And such is the truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. It can be very hard for people to grasp all that, all that includes, and even for those who believe it. It's a mystery beyond our comprehension and a wondrous and glorious thing that we can't think about often enough. And I'm so thankful for the Christmas season to give, give us an opportunity to refocus in the wonder of the incarnation of, of the son, eternal Son of God, remaining God, but yet becoming man for our eternal salvation. And so I wanna, what we've been talking about is how this might challenge people in the modern world and the ancient world so that we can understand kind of the different dimensions of the incarnation. And today to do that, we're going to look at John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. John chapter 10 and verse 22, reading to the end of the chapter. And let's listen to God's holy inspired word. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. So that's Hanukkah, basically. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, as the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for my good work. They replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me because, unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is me in me and I in the Father. And they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have spoken a word that is true and infallible in which we can base our lives, and that continues to enlighten us and lead us to life as it's meant to be lived to joy, to peace, to patience, to kindness and love by the power of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work all these things in us and grant us your grace that we might understand, even as you 
wrote long ago by your spirit, so speak in our hearts by your spirit. Bless all who are listening online, who watch the video, who, will, who are here today. We pray that you would speak to them and that you would call us to the glory and understanding of the glory of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In much of the world in which Jesus lived, people believed not in one God, but in many gods. And so when Jesus would have spoken about himself being the Son of God, or when the Christians would have spoken about Jesus and and worshipped him as God, they would no doubt have heard of him as being just one manifestation amongst many of the gods coming to this world. And so they had the challenge of actually clarifying that that's not what they were saying. They had to say, we believe in one true God who who exists in three persons, the second person of the Trinity become a human being. Uh, Not an easy task. And the church had challenges and struggles to, to be able to do that. But there was one place in the ancient world in which the message that Jesus was the Son of God would have been taken in a very different way. And you have an example of that in the passage, and that was in the land of Israel. Because it was the heart of their confession that God was only one, which, of course, we agree with, but in a slightly different sense. But how they would have heard then Jesus saying, I am the Son of God, who was a man, would have seemed like the, uh, uh, the, uh, the religion of the pagans to them. This is blasphemy, as we see in this passage. And so, so Jesus had to challenge them with the idea that God was, though he has one eternal essence, that he has three persons. And this was a deep challenge for them. It was a stumbling block because, as, we, as we'll see here, he who seemed to be a mere man made himself God. And that was utterly abhorrent to their thinking. And so what we're going to see is how Jesus interacted with that challenge and how he answered that challenge. So let's let's first look at the accusation here of blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking something against God. So the Jews accused Jesus of blasphemy when he said, I and the Father are one. Now, we can say that we can be one with the Father in some sort of union that, as Jesus is going to say in John chapter 17, he says, that they may be one even as we are one in sense of love and communion. But Jesus here is not talking about that. He's talking about oneness in the sense of the ability to do all those things that God could do. He's talking about his works. So they understand him as basically claiming to be God. And so they took up stones to stone him. Jesus accu- they accused Jesus of blasphemy. And so they said, someone who commits blasphemy must be put to death. And that was how it was written. And so they took up stones in order to stone him. And they accused him of blasphemy because, as we read in verse 33, listen to this very carefully. Jesus asked him, why are you taking up stones to stone me? And he says, we are not stoning you for any good work. They replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And so sometimes people want to say that Jesus was just a mere man who was a good teacher, like many other good teachers in this world, and that we can learn from him like we can learn from anyone else. But Jesus has shut that door because he claimed to be God, and those listening to him understood that. 
And you notice that he doesn't say to, he doesn't say to them, I am not, you totally misunderstood me here. This is completely wrong. He's saying, he, he answers them. We'll look at his answer. But in essence, he affirms what, he, what they are saying. And so it's a, Jesus is not the sort of person that we could just take as just a normal teacher of men. He is someone who's claiming to be much, much more than a mere teacher. And those who heard him understood that. They understood him rightly. They didn't agree with it. We agree with it. And so they said, therefore, we're going to rid the earth of you. That's what they said. And you can still see that this is a stumbling block today. Um, in, for, for, for the Jews, it is hard for them to, to grasp that idea that God has an eternal son. And it's a stumbling block to them to this day. It's a stumbling block in many parts of the world. Um, in, in, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in the, in the religion of Islam, it is so ingrained in them that God is one that the idea, they even entertain the idea that God would have a son seems to them like blasphemy. I remember when I was over in Egypt, and I, must, and I want to preface this by saying that uh, it was really good to interact with Muslims there. And uh, I had a lot of good interactions with them. And I realized that a lot of my life, I'd not had a lot of personal interaction with, with Muslim people. And I think that that colored some of my view. But when I actually talked to them, we were able to engage in a lot of good conversations. Very open to discuss the theology. And, uh, and so, so I don't want to take what, you're, you're, you're say, what I'm saying here to say that, um, you know, I have this big... Uh, vendetta against against muslims even though i disagree with them um i was very surprised by how much good interaction that i had and even on theological topics so but there was one experience well that was um that was kind of interesting one of the things is when you when you go over to egypt you're 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 looking at the temples of the ancient gods which, of course, the Muslims find abhorrent, the idea. And, of course, we disagree with that as well as Christians. And so, uh, but one of, the, one of the things was, this is kind of random, but we, in, the, in, the, in, in the tombs you'll see pictures of Osiris. And Osiris is seen, is pictured as, as sort of, has, as having died. And so he's placed like a mummy, like this. And so when I was, I, we went on a boat on the Red Sea, and um, then we went out snorkeling, and then I floated in the Red Sea. It's a very salty. It's not the Dead Sea. It's the Red Sea, but it's still saltier than others. And you could, I, I was actually floating like this, and it really worked. I remember talking to this Muslim Egyptian guy there, and, I, and I, he was like, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is the god Osiris. And I noticed his face changed immediately. He says, there is no god but one. And I was like, I agree. I agree. You know, it's like, but, and I said, I agree with you on that. And so, um, but I was kind of making a joke, but he didn't take it that, that well, obviously. And, and that's, that's how people can react. When you hear, they hear the, the idea that we believe that God has a son. And I read a story recently about a man named Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was, was a, grew up in a, a very devout Muslim home. He was trained rigorously in that. Um, but grew up in the United States. And he, he met some people who confronted him with the claims of Christ. And he remember, he's like, he's speaking to Allah. And 
We should remember that the, the word Allah is not like the idea of a different God. It's just the Arabic word for God. So when they say Allah, it's just, it's just the word God. So when he, when he, the idea all of a sudden began to dawn on him as he was confronted with the claims of Christ and began to see they're true, he's speaking to Allah. And he says, when I'm speaking to you, Allah, am I speaking to Jesus? Like it was such a profound thought for him. Like he, that, that shattered what he had thought before as he began to, to take that in. But he was, he was very afraid to take that step and say that. He was afraid because of his family, because he was very close with them, and they were very uh, rooted in, in the Muslim faith. That was the center of their family. So to, to do that would be like a betrayal to his family. He also had some fear of how people in the community would respond. And that there could be persecution if he turned away from the Muslim faith. And then even thinking about, is if I say that Allah is Jesus, God is Jesus, then I could actually be in danger of going to hell. And so for him, it was a huge step. He saw, in a way, better than maybe a lot of us do a lot of times, the weight of actually what we are dealing with here is that we're talking about the, the claims of Christ, which have to do with our eternal destiny and our very connection with the Creator. And so when we talk about Christmas, you know, it's fun to celebrate. And I, I love Christmas season. I love to see the lights and stuff. But we also have to remember that Christmas has an edge to it. Like it's a challenge that we're talking about here. And so that's what Nabil Qureshi was confronting. And I'm going to come back to his story a little bit later and tell you how he brought that together. But let's turn then to see how Jesus himself answered the, his, those who were saying that he was false or ready to kill him, actually. And he answered them, in essence, with his works. The answer comes from the work of Jesus. And to do that, he began, he answered them with Scripture in kind of an interesting way that definitely makes us pause is that, that the, he goes back to, uh, song, to, to the Psalms where it says, speaks of the rulers of the world and it calls them Elohim, which means gods. And so what, what, what sometimes the scripture will give, give the tit- that title to those to whom, as it says, the word of God came because they have some likeness to God in terms of the authority that they exercise in the world. And yet, obviously, in the next phrase that he cites here in the scripture, it says, but you will die like men, recognizing that even for themselves, they saw themselves as these gods and sometimes called themselves gods, but yet also they certainly had the weakness of men, even though in their authority and power, they had a certain reflection of God. So what Jesus answers them, he he answers them with an argument of the lesser to the greater. In other words, He says, if he called them gods, then why not this? Listen to verse 36. He says, if he calls them gods, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I am said God's son? In other words, if the one who was existed before and was sent into the world. If they called rulers of the world gods, then why not the one whom he sent into the world and set apart and who does the exact same works 
as the Father. If he called them gods, then certainly he rightly calls, in the full sense, the Son of God, God. And so he actually affirms what they are saying. And what he points them to is he says, he actually says, don't believe me unless what I do is what the Father does. Look at verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Now, how do we know who God is? Well, he has revealed himself in Scripture, but we also know him through his works. And so, because we could see in this vast world the wonder of the work of God, which is not something that got here by chance or by accident. It is not something that, that just happened to come to be and floated together somehow. That is nonsense. And no one could possibly believe that unless they were absolutely convinced that, that, that they had to oppose it. If you ran into a computer chip or a computer sitting on the, the, the beach, no one would ever be able to convince you that that got there sheerly by accident and chance. You would see from the design that it's obviously this was designed for a purpose. You would 100% know that. You would also know that even if something as simple of you go on the beach and someone writes something, help, or happy birthday, even something which is super simple, but clearly has a design for a purpose of communication, you could never believe that that just got there by seagulls walking around by random chance. And, and when we compare that to the world, we're talking about incredible complexity that goes far beyond even what our most advanced computers can do. And so it's impossible to believe that this world was not designed, and it's totally contrary to any intuition. You virtually have to deny reason itself to say that this wasn't the case. So how do we know the Creator? Because we can see His works all around us. We We look at the vast expanse of the world and how the world is designed uniquely to allow life to exist on this planet. We see the marks of His work, or we go down to the deepest cell that is, is, is more advanced than our most advanced computers and yet can even reproduce itself. And it is beyond belief. And so we know his, the Father from his works. We know his, the, the Word because the Father, it is the work of the Father. And we can see his very fingerprints there. And so Jesus is saying, how do you know that I am one with the Father in power and work? Because I do the works of the Father. Because I do the works of the Father. It say, he says, what have we seen him do? He takes water and turns it into wine. He takes a few loaves and fishes and feeds thousands with those by multiplying them. He walks on the sea. He's not bound by the laws of physics. He, he makes one who is blind from birth able to see. He's doing things that only the Father could do. And so he is saying that that's how you can know that I am the what I say that I am. The church father Athanasius, who fought for this truth through many trials and struggles, put it this way in his wonderful book on the Incarnation, which I highly recommend to you. For just as though, for just as though invisible, God is known through the works of creation. So having become man and being in the body unseen. It may be known from his works that he who can do these is not man, but the power and the word of God. 
And then Athanasius actually cites John 10, 38, which says this. But if I do these works, even though you don't believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the logical conclusion. If I can walk on the sea, if I can multiply the loaves, which everybody knew had happened, if I can make a blind man see, if I can turn the water into wine, then believe that God has come amongst you. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the logical conclusion of his works. Now let me just take a brief detour here. Say, sometimes people object to this. Sometimes even people who say they believe in the scriptures say, well, Jesus is just then a manifestation of the Father. It's the same person. The Father is one person and Jesus is that same person just wearing a different role. Like I'm a father, a son, a pastor, and so on. But what you need to see is Jesus shuts that door. He says, no, we're talking about two different persons. He says in John 8, 18, I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. In other words, there's two witnesses. One is the Father and one is the Son. Now, if, if I go into court and they say, we need two witnesses, and I, say, and I say, look, I'm a father, and so that's one witness. Now I'm a son, and now I get to be a second witness. No court is going to accept that. Jesus is saying, no, it's one person and another person. But yet there's still one God. Another objection that people bring is that Jesus, the Son of God, assumed another person. That he just came into a close union with another human being who, was, who had an, his own person, personhood. But what you see is that the scriptures clearly refute this. Lloyd looked at last week in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, what does it say? And he, the Word, became flesh. He didn't join himself to another person. He became human. The one who was he before, the person before, became a human. And that's what the, the early church hammered out for us through much trial and difficulty. And they produced what, in substance, we confessed in our faith, which is also in, in the formula of Chalcedon, um, that Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, that without mixture, without confusion, without separation, without division, forever. And so that is how we should see what Jesus is saying. But now there's a story here of the rejection of Jesus, but there's also a story of acceptance. And the leaders of the Jews rejected Jesus. They sought to take him. Again, after he said all this, they said, okay, basically you're saying what we thought you were saying. And so it says, again, they tried to seize him or arrest him and take him away and punish him for blasphemy, as they later did successfully. But it says he escaped from their grasp this time because it was not his time that the Father had given them. But then it's interesting. He goes back to, to then he crosses the Jordan or goes to the other side of the Jordan, the place in the Jordan where John the Baptist was teaching. Remember, John the Baptist it says, this one is greater than me because he was before me. And I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus came there and spoke to them, it says, they said, John never performed a sign, but all that John said about this man is true. And so many people then on the, who, began, who had already heard from John believed in Jesus. And they accepted him. And they said, 
We see the works. We agree. John was right in what he said, and we trust him as the Savior of the world. And why did they believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus had already explained this. He said they believed in Jesus because they were his sheep. Look at what he said to his detractors in verses 25 and 26 when they challenged him about whether or not to tell him that he was the Messiah. He says, I did tell you, that I, but you did not believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And then he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So it is the sheep who listen to the Lord and then they follow him. And then he says to them, and I'm going to lead them to eternal life. As he says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so, so we, what we see is the sheep are going to hear the voice of Jesus and they're going to follow him and he's going to keep them. So what should you do if you, you, today you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm one of his sheep. Well, follow Jesus. And if you follow him, then you know you're one of his sheep. But don't say, if you do that, I'm better than everybody else. Say, I did this because God, God's grace made me one of his sheep so that I'm able to follow him. Give him the credit. And if you keep believing it, don't say, man, I've done a better job than everybody else. Say, Jesus kept me when I would have gone astray. It is because he has held me that I am still with the Lord and that is because of him and his grace that I have not gone astray. It is because of him that I am not a victim of the power of darkness and the own darkness and the darkness in my very soul. And that's what happened to Nabil Qureshi. He heard the voice of Jesus when he was seeking Allah. Again, the Arabic word for God. And that's why he wrote his book explaining his journey, which I would highly recommend to you, is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He had studied the claims of Christ and he had worked through issue after issue after issue. And that's what the chapters in his book are about. It's very interesting how he discusses this. And it was a long process of years of thinking through it. We need to remember when people have, had, have, have thought through things and organized their life in turn to serve of certain ideas, it's not, sometimes God just breaks through and changes them completely. But oftentimes people have to work through that. And even if they, they instantly gra- turn to Christ... There's still a process of working through it and trying to get that in your straight, in your head, and we need to recognize that's the nature of human beings, and we need to be patient with one another. And that's also a good model in that book for how that happened and how they use friendship to reach, has some Christians reached out to him in friendship. We're willing to listen to him. We're willing to engage with him. We're willing to be patient with him. We're willing to show him respect. So in that respect also, I recommend that book. But through the process of years, he, he, he realized, like, I believe mentally that, that the claims of Christianity can be verified and that the claims of Islam cannot. But again, because of fear of family, persecution, and hell, he had a hard time making that jump. But he chose to follow Jesus in spite of that. And, and, and again, I'm not going to do justice to the force of these words. 
But as you walk through this thing with him and how he, his life with his family and so on, and how big of a step this was, imagine when he's reading Matthew chapter 9, and it says to them, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross, ready to bear persecution, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That is part of the challenge and stumbling block of following Jesus. So why would anybody do that? It actually seems like that is so crazy to, to say, to embrace that as a way of life. Well, Nabil Qureshi did that because he realized that the claims of Jesus were true. And he was willing to stake his eternal destiny on them and to say it's more important that I connect with my creator. That's the most important thing. Who it became into this world as Jesus. And I'll have to just let the chips fall where they may because that's more important than anything else. It's important for this life, but it's also important for the life to come. If he is the eternal son of God, equal with the father, come into the world, then I must follow him no matter the cost. I must follow him, and I actually have everything I need in him. If you have God, then you have everything, because he can supply everything that you need. That's why we can say, that's what Nabil, with, that's what Nabil Qureshi concluded. And so he realized that Jesus is the good shepherd, as he says earlier in this passage who will not fail to lead us to the refreshing streams and the good pasture. He is the good shepherd. And so good, goodness and mercy will follow us. In spite of the challenges, in spite of having a table in the presence of our enemies all the days of our lives. And then we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Amen.